Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly. Co-hosting with me today is Adam Butler, CIO at Resolve Asset Management Global. There's a great quote from Fidelity legend Will Danoff. Want to be a contrarian? Then invest for the long term. I love this quote and reason for that is in 11 words, Danoff sums up the implication and benefit of what it means to be a long-term investor. And it may seem too obvious at first, but perhaps this implies that you should invest in a way that allows for you to have enough space to be able to be a long-term investor. But how do you do that? How do you build a portfolio with allocations you can live with and hold and run for decades, no matter what's happening in markets? A portfolio that allows you to sustain a holding that you'll feel little need to trade when everything around you is flashing red. And if you weren't in a portfolio like this beforehand, before the likes of the market we're in now, what's the roadmap for transitioning to one that is? Meb Faber, co-founder and CIO at Cambria Investment Management is joining us from LA. Meb is the manager of Cambria's ETFs and separately managed accounts. Meb is the author of a multitude of books and white papers, a prolific podcaster, a frequent speaker, and has been featured regularly in Barron's, The New York Times, and The New Yorker. So stay tuned. I promise this is going to be a fully loaded conversation. While the music's rolling, hit that subscribe button, like us, and leave us comments. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Matt, awesome to have you back. How's it going? What up? Great to see everybody. Happy summertime. How are things in LA? It's always sunny here. We were just talking about uh, things are good. I'm a little homeless. As I mentioned in the, the intro, I am uh, picked the worst time in 20 years to um, do a little reno house renovation. So we're, uh, we're living the supply chain dream. Um, but good excuse to travel, get back out in the world. So we've, uh, we've hit up some fun spots, seen... Uh, Seen some of y'all in the real world recently, which is great, and uh, hopefully back in soon. We'll see. Y'all uh, y'all listeners are welcome to come uh, drop drop me a line in Manhattan Beach and uh, have a coffee, a beer, or go for a surf when you're here. I highly recommend taking Meb up on that, actually. Never well, I think, I, think, uh, I think, Meb, next time, uh, next time we're in L.A., we might maybe physically get together and have uh, a record a podcast then. Let's do it, man. I'm uh, I'm I'm game anytime. Come on down. And, and once uh, once we're back in our house, I'm like not going to want to go anywhere. So <laughs> this this may be the this is the chance. I thought this would be a really good time to talk about portfolio construction, and you're just like the perfect person to talk about this very subject. We we've, we've been having these conversations lately. Uh, you weren't you weren't with us recently, Adam. We we did a whole podcast on on the uh, adaptive asset allocation strategy that you guys are running at Resolve. It was terrific. This is like the perfect, like part two of that conversation. But you know what, to kick things off, why don't we, uh, why, don't, why don't you tell us the story of how you got into the business in the first place, how Cambria Investment Management came to be, and what you're up to these days? What am I up to these days? I, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about your intro when you were talking about long-term time horizons, which I feel like everyone says, but no one actually does, right? It's kind of like people uh, say, you know, I, I'm on a, this is, this is, this is 
needling Adam and his crew. I'm on a keto diet, but then you watch them go get the croissant at breakfast or whatnot, right? So like they say it, but then, you know, it's, uh, do they actually set up systems to behave that way? Um, which is why we see so many investors fail. Anyway, let's rewind. So yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I save a lot of my, uh, anger, vitriol, angst for the Robin Hoods of the world, which alludes to your what you're just ta talking about, like, how do you set yourself up for success? <clears throat> but I try not to be too judgmental. Look, this was me 20 years ago. I fully participated in the internet bubble. I was an engineering student studying biotech. So it was a dual bubble for those who, who weren't around back then. So it wasn't just the internet stocks. It was biotech uh, uh, was just as uh, crazy, which has a, a very similar vibe and feel today, right? Biotech stocks are down like a third this year, probably from the peak 50, maybe. Um, so it's got a, a, a similar vibe and feel to, to that, my favorite bubble, which was the late 90s. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was all intents and purposes ready to do a PhD in grad school in, in biomedical engineering and kind of got um, swayed by the dark side, perhaps. Um, and uh, my year or two off, I mean, I did go to grad school, but but my career trajectory, uh, I started working at biotech mutual fund and then just kept getting more and more quant, more less and less biotech and, and life sciences. And one day woke up and my, my hobby became my career and vice versa. And here we are. Um, we started Cambria right before the financial crisis, survived it, started launching ETFs in 2013. And here we are now with a dozen funds uh, and... Um, almost a decade under our belt. So uh, we always sit, we always tell people the best compliment you can give someone in the world of entrepreneurship or investing uh, or life, really, look, we're all, we're all here another day is to, uh, is simply that you survived. So we're happy, uh, we're ha happy to still be around and particularly these crazy times <clears throat> last few years uh, to have made it thus far. That was my two minute. How'd I do? Brilliantly as usual. Um, one of the things I thought we could get into, Meb, trying to sort of think about topics we haven't covered over and over extensively, um, is how you, right from the start, approached investing with kind of a rules-based bias, right? I mean, you, you published that um, quantitative, what was it, quantitative asset allocation, um, mm -hmm. approach to asset allocation paper. In what was that? Oh six, oh seven. Uh, yeah, it was a long time ago. <clears throat> and um, but I mean, obviously, coming out of grad school and working at a biotech fund, I suspect they weren't particularly rules based in their approach, right? So, so how did you cotton on to rules based thinking and and begin to move in that direction? What motivated that? You know. I mean, I, I talk to like a lot of the younger investors or, or on Twitter today, too. And I try to say this with a, without the like old person judgment that feels so off putting, you know, where I'm like, look, um, many people have lost a ton of money in this last year. And many people have lost all their money in the last year. And there's kind of two paths people take from that. Uh, the first path being uh, we blame, you know, the grifters and promoters or all the bad actors on Wall Street, which have been around for 100 years, by the way, um, you know, the charlatans and all the bad, bad guys out there and say, it's their fault. It's my neighbor. I cannot believe he put me in that Dogecoin or that SPAC or whatever. And then I lost all my money. Um, 
that's a story that's as old as time. You know, what we tell, hopefully it's younger people with not much money. If it's, it's older and more experienced, it's a little harder. You know, you got a family, a bunch of kids to feed, et cetera. Um, but what we say is like, look, take some pride in it. You know, you may be eating mustard sandwiches for a year, and but uh, learn from it, you know, and say what, take responsibility. What did I do that was stupid? How do I take these scars and be humble and, and have the humility to learn from all these experiences. Because again, this was me 22 years ago. I lost all my money. I was trading biotech stocks. I was trading options. And it was like a checklist of like doing dumb things, over-concentrated, check, you know, having an investment plan, then not sticking to it, check, like having, uh, you know, a trade idea, then not changing the rules as you went along, check, on and on. And so, you know, even the fund I worked for, which was a sector based fund, didn't matter if you had relative performance. You know, if you did minus 70 when the index did minus 80, well, <laughs> good luck. There's nobody around anymore. But it set me down that path of, OK, how can I think rules based or objectively about what's going on? How can we put this into a process? And, you know, look, that's obviously like any of us, it's it's a growth process. Like it's ongoing 20 years later and we're, we're still refining it. But um, certainly that decision to remove, and I had all the biases. I still do. Look, you guys know me. I'm overconfident. Um, you give me all the risks, like I'll take it, like bring it on, baby. And so I need to set up the guardrails. Like if I have vanilla ice cream or mint chocolate chip probably in my freezer, I'm going to eat it. Like that, there's no more certain outcome. So putting in the rules and processes that you know, help you behave and diet, I think is such a great example, but exercise and, and just life in general, so many things with, with personal finance, um, set me on that path. And it's been a long one and it's ongoing. Uh, and it was funny cause you mentioned that original paper, you know, I was in my late twenties when I wrote that paper, um, which is all very popular now today, but at the time, um, I sent it out to like a dozen people, that I really respect in the industry and got like universal F. It's like, it's like when the teacher gives you back a, it's like F circled red. I had one hedge fund manager. We started compiling these, by the way. I have a whole list um, in, in Google Sheets that I call Meb Haterade. So anytime someone writes a particularly nasty uh, response to some of my work or something, we just file, we smile, laugh, file it away. And this is a long document, by the way. Now, listeners, <laughs> this is many pages. But this first paper, this young, impressionable 20-something wrote it, trying to first attempt at getting out this rules-based process. And one of the most respected hedge fund managers, everyone on this podcast know and uh, would recognize, wrote back, he's like, this is worthless. Not like, hey, man, cool paper, but, you know, I, I disagree with it. He's like, this is worthless. I'm like, worthless? Come on. Like, at least give me something to work with. But uh, but anyway, so... Um, it's been a, it's been a um, journey like everything in life, but uh, I think for me in particular, the emotional component of money, which we all know is the most important like part of behavioral, like this relationship to money, there's so much built up into it uh, psychologically that if you don't have processes in place, it makes it really, really hard. Uh, to do a good job of it. Yeah, so pull, pulling on a couple of threads there, one is, do you think you could have 
arrived at a more rules-based orientation if it hadn't been for the pain that you endured by taking a more discretionary or, um, you know, freewheeling approach before that? You know, um, like anyone, I tend to think there's like many different paths we all could take in life. Uh, I think everyone, the easiest way to, uh, visualize this is like with life partners, people you've dated, right? Like most of us didn't marry or, uh, currently with the first person we met. So there's a whole laundry list of good, bad in between. Um, and, and, and for many of us will be in the future as well, you know? And so I like to think that, um, there are many paths that would have been fine. You know, I mean, there was a path where, I mean, right out of college, I was, uh, interviewing with, Decode Genetics. Anyone remember this? This was an Icelandic biotech company that was focusing on sequencing the genome of their company, uh, their country, which is very homogenous, right? Iceland is, is known for being very, they even have an app if you're dating that lets you know how closely related you are to a, a person. It's like a um, Tinder, but for Iceland, uh, but, but it's unique properties. And I was like, you know, where would I be today? Would I would be talking with you good looking gentlemen, um, having a uh, uh, gone to work in Iceland for a few years. Who knows what I'd be doing? Professional skier. That's what I'd like to be thinking. Um, but who knows? So, you know, I, I, I think, um, uh, there's, I was listening to a clip with, uh, Eddie Vedder. I, so I recently saw my first Pearl Jam show it was on my bucket list and you know, they're getting older, but he had a quote, not at the show, but, but he was talking about his early career and he said, he wished he enjoyed the struggle more, um, which is, easy to say hard to do right like when you're broke and lost all your money or you have all these trades like that's it's easy to be like yeah this was great learning experience man i'm so glad i went through this struggle so i don't know how necessarily like that has guided the path but i'm certain that it did you know um do i think i would have been okay as a you know venture capitalist in biotech or as a discretionary manager focused on farmland investing you know probably but you know like it's the, the old john bogle quote um he's like is is this indexing portfolio right for me um yeah i think so are there uh um, better portfolios sure um but i can tell you certainly there's infinite that are worse um and so for me like i it's i've arrived at this sort of rules-based uh world which seems to fit the personality, which I think is a big key for a lot of people. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a gold bug, if you're a crypto person, if you're whatever, like find something that aligns with your worldview and, and psychology is <clears throat> easy to say, but hard to do. But once you get there, I think is the, is the fit that matters. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's the, uh, after having all these conversations, you know, the last couple of years since we started, you know, podcasting in earnest, I find, I, I think I finally realized that behavioral risk is the biggest of all. It's, it's, it's more, it's more important to address the behavioral concerns before you do anything else. And so, so, you know what, I mean, getting into, into rules-based investing starts to make a lot more sense once you get over that hurdle of realizing that, that you're, you're basically you're your own worst enemy. And, and I think what's important on this, too, is I think there's a lot of investing approaches that are just fine, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the Venn diagram, you put one huge circle or list over here of things that are totally fine and thing on the, on the other side, things that are 
totally not fine. Um, the list of what's fine is probably long. Like if, if you had an advisor or an investor that came up to me and said, Mab, here's what I do. I buy 10 high yielding dividend stocks each year. I put them away and each year I buy 10 more and that's it. I dollar cost average in them. What do you think about it? And I say, look, that's not for me, nor do I think that's optimal. But if that works for you, God bless you, right? Like fine, like as long as you understand, and this is the problem for most investors is because they haven't studied history and at least the basics of what has happened in the past, um, that at least gives you some foundation or anchor from which to have expectations and say, hey, look, this portfolio, he says, look, I recognize this portfolio will decline 50% maybe once or twice a decade. I recognize in a worst case scenario, this portfolio will go down 80 plus percent. And I'm okay with that. And I've built in things to where, you know, these processes, this money over here, I've paid, I don't have any debt, yada, yada. I'm fine with that then that's fine. You know, is it ideal? Is it what I would do? Hell no. Um, but is it, is it okay? Now there's things that where you set yourself up to almost guaranteed fail. It's like when the old Forex brokerages uh, had to publish what percentage of customers lost money day trading Forex. It was like 98%. It's like, this is going to be that other scenario. I'm like the Robin Hood investors when Vlad's like, the majority of our investors are buy and hold. I'm like, that is a bold-faced lie. There is no scenario where what you just said is true. Um, but anyway, uh, so I think there's plenty that's fine and okay. There's a lot that's not fine and not okay. If you're to ask me for advice or what, what um, you know, I think sets people up for a better outcome. I think understanding the narrative and having a story right, is, is underappreciated in our world. The best investors, yeah, they're good at investing, whatever, but, but they tell a good story uh, uh, or at least make it relatable. But you have to have the understanding of context, you know, otherwise that's when, I mean, it's the same in relationships. Like you have expectations and they're not met, like look out below, right? Like ready for fireworks. And the same thing in investing is like, so we were saying this about 60, 40 this year. One of the worst years ever to begin for 6040 was down like 12, 13%. I said, if it closed here today, that's top five worst year ever for 6040 US only. Um, and I had polled investors. I said, what do you think the worst drawdown for 6040 was? And almost everyone says like 10, 20%, but it's 50 plus, right? And so those investors will be surprised if that ever happens again. And on top of that, the worst drawdown by definition is always in your future. So it could be worse than that. So... Um, there's plenty of ways to do just fine, but I think, uh, the, the struggle comes with investors think a, so last year, the investors that expected 17% returns for the next decade, and then B happens and they get zero. That's when, that's when the capitulation, bad behavior, panic, fear all set in. So how would you, if you, someone, someone comes and talks to you about their, current 60-40 portfolio, which is which is down on all fronts. And they want to talk to you about, you know, transitioning from that to something that's going to be a little more successful throughout chaotic periods. What's your advice? Like how where do you begin to to start to, you know, reconstruct or or rejig the portfolio to something that's more toward more to what you would think is your liking? You know, I, I think um, 
most invest we now have over 100,000 investors and and talking to them over the years of all stripes this applies to grandma with her e-trade account in Texas to institution or family offices all over the world um, I think one of the most important things being relatable and, and honest is is a talking about um, everyone gets sold so much right they say oh you shouldn't do this you should do why you know, um, and I think being upfront and honest, uh, personally, we talk a lot about this skin in the game and others don't agree, but I, I think it's important for managers to invest in their own funds. You know, the average mutual fund manager has zero invest in their own fund. Um, it doesn't have to be close to a hundred like mine. Uh, but, but it's, I feel like it should be some. And so, um, you know, we often have conversations with investors and, I was telling actually our team this this last week. I said, you know, most many investors that will come talk to us, look, we have 12 funds, so something is always doing terrible, right? That's just the nature of the world. Like something is doing well, something is doing terrible. And someone will invariably come up to us and say, hey, look, I bought this fund three months ago, six months ago. It's doing awful. Why shouldn't I sell it? Why shouldn't I do X, Y, Z? And the response they always get from advisors is a long laundry list of like why you should invest in this fund. Um, but to me, often I say, oh, like looking at what's happened, I say, oh, no, you don't understand. Like if you think this is bad performance, this fund could do this strategy could do way worse. Like it's only down 10 percent. Like this thing could go down 50 or 70. Right. And this could under underperform its index, not just one year, but like five. So let's have some context, you know, and so and then we'll talk about it. And the same thing going back to the very beginning of the discussion. And I've said this so many times, so I apologize. It, you guys have heard this. Listeners may not. But people used to ask me, Meb, I'm going to allocate to this fund or strategy. How long should I give it? It's It's been junk. I'll give it like three more months. And I said, no, that's way too soon. You need to give it probably 10 years. And they just blank face. Right. Like, what are you like? You're joking. Right. Like, come on. Like waiting for me to say, OK, just kidding. But now I would say 20, you know, and like it can show you the stats and the math behind this of these cycles and whatever. So I think having an honest discussion of what can happen and, and ways to think about the world. So specifically to what you're talking about, if someone came up to me and said, look, I'm 60, 40. What's your opinion on this? I say, look. My priors are a. How much you save and invest in the first place is more important than what you invest in. So the fact that you decided to start saving at 50 versus 20 is the biggest decision. Or the fact that you just started to start saving 10% of your income versus 20. Those are going to swamp some of these decisions we're going to talk about later. So assuming you've done those, assuming you have this portfolio, I'm like 60, 40 over the next 40 years will probably be fine assuming you're not paying 3% for a closet indexer, right? And, and tax inefficient, all these just basics that people overlook. So structure matters, not doing stupid selling at the wrong time matters. Once we go through these basic, like, you know, the, it's like the, is it Lombata, which is the one you go under and, and, and the is it limbo, 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 limbo. Lombata is a dance. I think, you know, it's like it, the, the, the bar, like the pole vault, like, right. It's like the bar changes. So like, like let's, let's, Jump over these easy hurdles first, and then we'll get to the more important ones. And I'll say, look, okay, well, it's well-established, 60-40. All the quants you can talk to will be like, this is one of the worst opportunity sets of our lifetime, if not ever. 
U.S. stocks are, are expensive, bond yields are low. And here we are, you know, with one of the worst starts to 60-40. Finally, now I would have said this a year or two ago too, so caveat. Um, but the basics to me are the main cookie ingredients are the next one would be, all right, you want to be global. It's totally insane to me to be focused on one country. And this is like the most ratioed I get on Twitter anytime I talk about this, although that, that mood can and will change. Um, where I'm saying you shouldn't put all your money in one country and all the Americans lose their mind about it because U.S. stocks and bonds have done great last 10 years. I say, do you think it's smart for why don't you put all your money in U.K. stocks and bonds or Greek or Russian? And they're that's crazy. Why would anyone do that? <laughs> you just made the same mistake we just talked about. So going global um, to me is the next step is obvious, particularly now where I think foreign and emerging markets are cheaper. Um, tilting towards value and momentum factors, I think helps you stay out of big crazy bubbles. I think it adds a little return over time, um, but I think more than anything, it keeps you from the real insanity moonshot ones. Um, obviously real assets, which almost no one has exposure to whatsoever outside their own house. Uh, so we're talking commodities, real estate, tips to an extent, um, farmland, if you could get it, are all, I think, in that category. Uh, that's just for the base. This is a long-winded answer, by the way, so sorry. Um, that's the basics of the global portfolio. And then for us, you know, we're huge non-consensus here, uh, using momentum and trend, call it managed futures, you can call it trend following, call it whatever you want, relative strength as a nice balance to that traditional portfolio. And, and the nice thing, like there was an old writer, um, Paul Merriman, who used to do this, and his, his was, he did buy and hold and trend, but he would walk through each step and show historically how it impacted uh, return risk numbers for a portfolio and kind of shows, takes you through the journey from basic 60-40 to this kind of finale. And so you can say, historically, this is why it's been great. And then, of course, we're all in a real-time world. But um, to me, that's the the journey that kind of gets you to the finish line. And ours is a bit different and non-traditional. But um, many of the paths, if you stopped along the way, I think would be just fine, including all the priors that we talked about at savings and investing. But if you were to ask me what's the optimal, you know, for me, that's, that's the Trinity idea. And for me, uh, but back to Bogle, if you're going to do just the... The old buy and hold, you know, it's probably okay too. One of the things that I've been noticing over the last few years is as a bunch of tools have become available, especially online tools where they already have the data prepared in the background. You can just select funds or indices and they go back a long way. I'm thinking kind of like portfolio visualizer type software um, is you see a lot of do-it-yourselfers who use those tools and they plug in, you know, some of them have optimizers too, which, which are, you know, can be even more dangerous, but they plug in asset allocations and then they, they run them back through time. And then they post their W's on, oh, you know, I combined 62% U.S. cap weighted with 8% U.S. small cap value with, you know, 7.2%, blah, 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 blah. And they, and, and they perceive this as kind of gospel with some, with some, you know, measure of precision. 
And I keep, I keep trying to figure out how to maybe nudge people away from that kind of thinking, right? Like, I don't know, do you come across that a lot? And like, what kind of guidance do you give to people who I, I maybe easy, are over-determining that? I got, a good, I got a good story. My mom, my grandmother, Southern Cooks. And by the way, I was, I was thinking today, I was chatting with a friend about sell in May and go away. I said, I have a Southern version of that. It's called sell in May and see y'all in the fall. Um, and uh, as summertime, hopefully sabbatical comes around. Um, but I got a good analogy from when I was a kid. You know, we used to make those Toll House chocolate chip cookies and would eat the batter. Uh, and, you know, they never used the recipe. They would just do it by hand, Southern cook, you know, dash of sugar, this much butter, you know, taste it along the way, on and on. And it invariably ended up fine, you know, delicious. Like, how hard is it to muck up chocolate chip cookies, right? Um, now, if you totally excluded the chocolate chips, it's not going to be as good. If you left out butter or flour, like, it's not going to be a good cookie. So one entire category, but the exact percentages doesn't really matter. It's a chocolate chip cookie. It's the, the, the sum total of parts. And the analogy we give in the, the book, uh, our asset allocation book, which I need to update, um, but this looked at like dozens of famous asset allocation strategies, 60-40, permanent portfolio. And the caveats, these are all buy and hold market cap weighted. So things you can buy today for roughly zero, um, not necessarily then, but but today. And we looked at all these portfolios and the, the shocking conclusion to me, and they're hugely different. Some had 25% in gold, some had zero. Some had no real asset exposure, some was half. Some put 90% in US stocks, some had 25%. Um, surpri two surprising takeaways. One is they all had great performance over time. And there was a fairly tight clustering of compounded returns over, what is this, 50 years since the 70s. However, if you looked at the path, right, they were kind of bounce all over the place. In any given year, best to worst spread was like 30 percentage points, which is why in a short time, people go crazy. They're like, oh my God, like this year, look, commodities, only thing roughly that's up on a buy and hold basis, everything else is kind of in the tank, right? For the most part, not talking styles like value, just the buy and hold asset allocation. Um, you invest in commodities the past 10 years, that's a different story, right? It's also a different story from 2000, 2008. And so over long periods, simply owning assets that pay you to own them over long periods, you end up in the same place. The path is different. And then the analogy we give in the, in the book is I was like, if you layer in a ton of buy and hold asset allocation fees, that's actually more important. So we're talking financial advisor, average mutual fund back then, um, trading costs, whether you do short lending or not, on and on. That's actually way more important than the actual asset allocation for a buy and hold investor, which is a crazy takeaway. And I don't know really anyone else in the world that believes this besides me. <laughs> and so um, everyone always uh, gets mad. The Bogleheads are mad at me about this. Like we like the everyone gets mad at me. Twitter gets mad at me. I, don't, I say your asset allocation, if you do buy and hold, doesn't matter that much. Um, now, it's funny because you mentioned optimizer, because the funny thing is, is what people include in the initial conditions of their experiment, you know, and, and it shows their bias, right? And so we've talked about this, but there was, I think it was Goldman, you know, there's an old investing report where it was doing a classic mean variance optimizer. And it's easy to go back in history. Like we can all do a great back test. I've done millions, right? Like someone once, once called me the king of back tests, which was meant to be disparaging, but I took as a compliment. And, um, 
you can come up with a beautiful asset allocation curve for, for anything. And, you know, the challenge is how do you create the tolerance bands or restrictions? And so we've talked about this where you throw in any index of trend following or managed futures, and then you blind the name of the asset classes and strategies. And you just watch how much of a allocation that strategy gets. And it's usually on the far right end of the curve. And Goldman, I forget when they did this strategy optimization, it was like, I think it was over half in trend. And they're like, well, we all know that's crazy. So we can't do that. And you're like, well, what do you mean that's crazy? Like, that's what your experiment just showed, but you don't like the result. I was actually just reading a book on cannabis and it's talking about, you know, this huge history of, of cannabis legalization and all the problems it caused uh, over history. And they're like, you know, Nixon commissioned a big medical association study in the 70s. And the study came back and it's like, hey, guess what? Cannabis is not only not harmful, it's actually pretty beneficial. And he's just ignored it, right? And then created 50 years <clears throat> of all the problems that occurred. So it's like these initial conditions and bias we have. And this is true for so many investors, you know, um, how, uh, and, and this is a conversation that we have often with investors, we say, can you honestly be asset class agnostic? And it's really hard for people because they want to be a crypto bull. I'm a crypto bull. You cannot pry these Bitcoins out of my cold, dead hands or say I'm a dividend gal or a gold bug and trying to have the independence of thought to say, look, some of these are good sometimes and some of them are garbage other times. Um, that's just the way it goes. So it goes, as Vonnegut would say, you know, um, I think that's harder. But but. Uh, Again, you guys got to ask me quicker. You got to cut me off after like two minutes. I may have a two minute answer. No, no, but, but I was I, the, I the other say. way I was going with that is that the with the proliferation of so many niche products as well, right? Liquid niche ETFs that are theme based, sector based, style based, etc. Right? This is where things can get real. Like, I think when you say it doesn't really matter what asset allocation you adhere to, as so long as you adhere to something. Those experiments are like big, broad asset classes, right? Like glo global equities or maybe U.S. equities, EFI emerging, global bonds or U.S. and ex-U.S. bonds, that kind of stuff, right? The big muscle movements. And for most of history, that's really all that, that investors could have access to on the index side, right? But now with the proliferation of all of these different niche strategies, you've got so much more opportunity for people to misuse and abuse these types of analytical tools, especially optimizers. If you don't really understand, I like your use of the word initial conditions, right? Like any type of strategy that, that emphasizes duration over the last 40 years is going to look smart, right? If, you, if you're going to use just the empirical data to determine your optimal asset allocation and you've got 40 years of data, it's going to tell you you want to own an abundance of long bonds. I mean, the, but the, 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 we probably shouldn't have the same expectation on long bonds going forward, right? You know, um, as you and I both know, the challenges of <clears throat> investors um, is we love to get enamored um, with what's working, the hot dot, the hot fund, the hot manager, the hot strategy, and, and love to run away from what's doing poorly. Um, and 
you know, the challenge of this, uh, you have this problem now because your uh, uh, RD mix fund is doing great. So uh, you're in the, you're in the hot seat of, of good performance. But, you know, we, we talked to investors and I remember having a conversation with a very large investor once and they said, and we're going through our funds. They go, Matt, tell me, like, what's your, what's your best fund? I'm like, I was like, what's, what does that question even mean? What do you mean? What is my best fund? And he goes, what's been the best? And he goes, look, I'm no noob. I'm not asking you like, what's your best performing fund in the last three years? Like, that's crazy. He goes, what's your best risk adjusted fund performance in the last three years? And I said, <laughs> and I said to him and I paused and I said, oh, oh, I know why you're asking me this question. You're asking me this question because you want to avoid that fund, right? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, we all know that like once you have a strategy or an asset class, like they go through periods of outperformance and underperformance and, and you know, um, you're not just going to chase the hot one. You want to avoid the hot ones. So you're looking at ones that may be out of favor. Right. And it just is a long pause of like, I wasn't trying to shame him. Just like, you know, have this moment of thinking, oh, wait, my process is actually just chasing whatever's working. Like that's crazy. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's easy and seductive and it feels safe, right? That's like the safest thing in the world. Like nobody wants to buy a chart of something that's been going down. We did a, um, we did a piece uh, like a year and a half ago. I said, you know, as managers, it's easy for us to always market what's working and talk about, you know, how awesome we are. No one on Twitter's ever had a losing trade, right? But the older folks, uh, you guys, I'm putting you in my camp. Um, you know, we have the scars and the humility. We know that, and, and I take it with pride, like all the mistakes and thousands of losing trades. I mean, my God, to be a trend follower like that, you have to be uh, death by a thousand cuts. Um, and so I said, look, let's let's write a different piece and we um, let's profile a strategy that has done very poorly, uh, but we still believe in uh, for reasons that are just conditions haven't been favorable. Um, and not do it in a defensive way, like be objective about it. And so we wrote a piece called Totally Not Crushing It and said, here's a strategy that's been absolutely god awful. And this was a buy and hold <clears throat> multi-factor, so value and momentum U.S. stock strategy. So mostly value, though. Uh, but it would hedge the portfolio with U.S. futures on the S&P in 25% chunks. Half of that's top-down value. Half of it was trend. And so, as you can imagine, leading up to 2020, it had every possible headwind, you know, growth outperformed value, large cap outperformed small, the choice of hedge was poor, on and on and on. It's just been awful. Um, but I think we appeased the market gods. They're like, bless you, son, you're showing humility. Because as soon as we wrote that, that fund has been an absolute tear. So now it's going to be like an annual practice from like, what is our stupidest, worst performing, stinky nauseous inducing fun strategy uh and we got a few uh that we're going to start to write about but part of that is um you know thinking in terms of uh the beginning of our discussion like having a policy portfolio having rules to where um you have perspective because no one and you guys can tell me if anyone's ever said this to you i've had a million people come up to me and say Matt, your strategy your fund has been garbage it's doing worse than expected. We're selling it. We love you. You're a nice guy, but we're selling it. I heard that a million times. You know what I've never heard, and this is verifiably true, is that, hey, Mab, your fund is doing way better than expected. Amazing. So you know what? We're selling it. 
we're coming back down to target or we just don't understand why this is doing so well uh right because they just say oh my god you're brilliant the strategy is amazing we're going to add more <laughs> right so uh if you don't kind of come up with the rules around how to think about those situations and most people don't they just do the buy decision and wing it that's where i think you get into a lot of trouble and, and all the academic research shows this is not an individual problem institutions are equally as horrific at chasing uh what's working yeah, Lu Zhang and um, the, the team that came up with the Q factor model published a database. I think it's 167 different investment strategies, and you can download all of them, daily returns back to the early 60s in many cases. And I thought this was a really good playground to sort of dig around and see whether there's just looking at performance, whether there's any way to you know, identify when it might be attractive to switch or emphasize one strategy or one group of strategies over another. And, you know, I, I must have tried well over two or 300 different cuts at this thing and none of them were any better than just kind of, you know, selecting a random handful of the strategies in, in all the different categories, right? This kind of like quality there's, there's a limited number of, of ways you can skin the cat, right? There's kind of quality, profitability, value, momentum, maybe, you know, low vol, but there's a, it, there's a handful, maybe a couple more than a handful of different ways you can skin it. Just generally sort of selecting a, 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 across the different spectrum and just buying and holding them in equal weight was better than any of the different selection methods that that I could come up with. But, but I mean, the general the lesson being. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, but, but the basic, re this includes the <laughs> advice of basic rebalancing, right? Um, but it, but to me, it's the opposite behavior is what you're avoiding, which is what if you just chase the hot manager after the hot period and then continually switch into those to me that, that is likely because it creates, it doesn't, if you did it systematically, it might be okay, actually. But no one does this systematically. They do it systematically in the opposite direction where they'll chase somebody who's outperformed, then buy the fund or wait till someone underperforms and then sell it. Like, I do, can you take advantage of the opposite of that? I don't know. I, don't, I think it's really hard. But to do what they do is, is a guaranteed, in my mind, negative alpha producer. Uh, obviously creates taxes and other problems as well. I think simple rebalancing is probably you know the smartest simple way to to keep your mind about you um but it also goes into this whole like why did you buy it in the first place and it mm -hmm. and exactly asking night we did like it was like 90 some percent of investors who said do you establish the sell rules and they say no so if you write down look hey here's why i would sell it doesn't matter if it's a stock a fund manager a discretionary investment a farm whatever why why and what are the conditions you will sell this and think about it because the way that most people do is they, you know, they just wing it. They say, "Let's see how it goes." I don't know. Let's I'm gonna buy some thing. I think there's a bottom in Tesla here. Let's see how it goes. And that's it's just fraught with peril. No, I mean, I think you want to do. I guess the point is choose a few things that you think are reasonable, and then kind of hold them in equal weight. Or if yeah. they're of wildly different risks, then hold them in kind of equal risk weight, right? But but trying to get too selective, I think, is a major source of potential error. And then 
also trying to time the things that you think are going to be effective over the long term is also almost certain to give to deliver suboptimal outcomes, right? There's a fun, kind of there's a fun stat. Figure out what you, you believe go, in and diversify. If you go back 100 years um, and look at just U.S. stocks and bonds, and let's say, you know, average return for that, whatever, 8% or something, 7%. You said, okay, I'm going to get this exactly wrong. I have perfect foresight, and I'm going to predict which one of these is going to do worse every year and invest in that one. You still make money. You don't make much. It's like 1% or something. But that is that to me is astonishing, that you could get it exactly wrong every year, and you would still make money. And then, look, how many people do we know that, you know, do things like, hey, I sold no nine and never invested again, or I invested in, I couldn't take it anymore. But I was like, you don't even have to average. You could just muck it up the worst possible way. You could muck it up every year and still make money. Like that to me is amazing. So, but it's, what can you do that's worse is where people get in trouble. Like the, the I can't take it anymore. I did this, this was, you know, on and on. Um, so I think avoiding like this, like long tail of worst case scenarios of behaving poorly is, is to me is really like the agreed the, the big, the big part of all of this. Well, I think it's, you know, people come by it honestly, right? I mean, if you think about how we're wired behaviorally, you know, we spent the vast majority of our evolutionary existence on the African veldt. If you had uh, a group of, a group of uh, people that are, that run and they leap out of the bushes and then they start running, you know, the other direction, you're probably smart. Your instinct is, well, I don't know what they're running from, but if they're running, I should probably run in the same direction, right? And so if you apply that to stock market, it's like, well, you know, this fund has been doing really well the last two or three years. I should probably run in the same direction. The reality is that the instincts that sort of the evolutionary behaviors that we've developed in markets mostly just kind of get you into trouble, right? And to, to Meb's earliest point, a lot of the, the, the biggest value of implementing rules are, is, is having guardrails against the behaviors that are seem so instinctively natural and, um, and right, and yet in markets really serve to, um, to, to set you back from where you, you might have been otherwise if you just behaved in a way that's consistent with, with some very basic rules. Well, I, I liked your point, Meb, that the point that you made earlier, that uh, as long as you've got all the ingredients, it's really hard to screw it up even if you don't get the recipe right, as long as all the ingredients are there, you're, you're, you're at least going to get the flavor of it. Right. So, yeah. um, so you could do it. You, you could obviously do a lot of things worse. Like, you know, you've said there's an infinite, infinite number of, you know, funds that are worse, infinite number of strategies that are worse, but what, what are some of the ways that you've come up that you've come to the conclusion are better way to uh, put these ingredients together. Yeah, so um, we did a post in the pandemic called How I Invest My Money in 2022. So we, we go full kimono. Um, and for me, I wanna spend almost zero time on my public portfolio. I want it to be set up and just were in the background, almost like a checking account. I don't wanna have to think about it and let the portfolio make any adjustments that need be made. And so here's my long list of things that I want in the portfolio. Uh, I want exposure to global stocks. I want exposure to global bonds. I want exposure to global real assets. 
I want tilts towards value. So I'm attracted to value and we do shareholder yield strategies, uh, partially because I love those sort of like investing 101 strategy, high cash flows, cheap, keeping the CEOs in check with distributing cash to shareholders on and on. Um, but also because of what it avoids, it avoids the opposite, right? Expensive companies and think about the last year, how many of these stocks are down 70 to 90% now. Um, and I want to avoid those. Uh, and so for me that, that works, the value part works. We do some momentum sprinkling in on the equities there. And then with the other half of the portfolio, so that's, that's, that's what we call like the global market portfolio with tilts on the other half, we do trend following. And there's lots of flavors of that. There's different cousins of whether you do long short, whether you do long flat. Um, and I think really either scenario is, is okay. Uh, and I want those to sort of yin yang. They don't always yin yang. Sometimes they look like each other. Right now they look extremely different. Uh, and, you know, buy and hold's tough because you got to hold on and just hope things work out. And usually it hits the fan when everything's going crazy. Trend is tough because often it underperforms when your neighbor's buying, you know, a bunch of high-flying uh, SPACs and, you know, IPOs and other things too. So, but it's a nice blend. And, and to me, it, it checks the behavioral box of not having to be binary all the way in on one investing approach and just hoping it works out. I like the diversification. So for me, like I walk through that and, you know, um, it, it works, it works for me. Trinity, strategies are, are up on the year, um, you know, and so in a world where most aren't, it's doing something a little different, right? Um, you know, I spend a lot of time also investing in, in, in private investments. So we come from a farmland background, uh, farmland traditionally one of the hardest things to allocate to, but, um, you know, is, is it, it fits in that category of too much work, I think for most people. So you want some sort of, ideally would be a passive exposure to farmland. Um, you know, I put real estate in that category. It's like my all time nightmare. Like why would anyone want to operate and manage real estate? Oh my God. Um, and so, uh, and then I do a lot of angel investing, but to me, I like, you know, with equities, I want to put it in a lockbox and forget about it. You know, 10, 20 years from now, I find out it's been acquired, merged, or it's now a huge companies distributing dividends. Great. But I don't, I, I want to buy and hold forever on that bucket. Um, so that's kind of what I walk through. We did a post called Journey to 100X that sort of details a lot of the specifics and happy to get into any of them. But um, that's sort of the, the one that, that works for me. And um, I have a very non-consensus view that, um, that most global portfolios and mixed with some cash is actually a much safer investment than cash and, or, or short-term government bonds. And we've tried to demonstrate that historically and don't find many people that follow that line of thinking. Um, maybe Michael Saylor, and he's got a slightly different conclusion than we do. But, uh, but I think it ends up being a safer portfolio, particularly, and here we are in 2022, where inflation is a lot higher than most would expect. Given where we are in the cycle, how do you think we can nudge investors into thinking more broadly about diversification, both from, uh, you know, into hard assets and then into different styles after um, U.S. 6040 has treated them so well for the last decade. You want the you realistic, pessimistic view? You'll like this, Adam. Uh, I think they'll do it after the fact. I think they'll buy what they wish it bought um, right down the road from me in L.A. 
I think when uh, the gas station goes from, I think I, I saw $8 in the wild, uh, you know, once that rolls over to 10 and they have to add like a whole nother digit because they don't have a, a, a tens digit on the gas station, um, people will probably get excited about buying commodities and or other real assets. I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but uh, eternally frustrated at, you know, the timing of people to, to get it right on, on the sentiment side. Um, so, you know, is, is, is any time a good time to become a globally diversified investor? Yes. You know, and, and do these things. Um, mm -hmm. Often having been through a couple big ones and a couple smaller ones, bear markets, particularly in U S stocks have a way of refocusing people's attention, I think would be the right way to say it, where, you know, investors, you lose some money. And I think it gets like, it's like a, I'm in LA. So it's like a um, earthquake logarithmic scale, like every 10% down, it gets 10 times worse. So down 10%, whatever, down 20 is like the inflection point where people I think start to wake up and be like, Oh, crap, this, this, how, how bad can this get? And then obviously down 30, 40, 50 on and on is, is gets more traumatic. But I think bear markets have a way of um, liquidating uh, people's current portfolios. And, and we, we say to people, we say, look, listeners, this, this show, take out a blank piece of paper, write down your ideal portfolio if you had no positions today. It's all right. You clean out your garage. There's nothing in there. What would you put in your garage? It's, it is definitely not what is in there currently. You know, all that garbage in there, you would not go, you know what, I'm going to buy all this again. I really you know, want to put in um, these old scooters from uh, the 70s and this old arcade game that doesn't work. I'm going to go buy that on Craigslist. No one would do that. It's crazy. So write down a piece of paper. This is my ideal portfolio. This is my current portfolio. And then realize how much emotional attachment you have to these legacy positions. And so it's a very cathartic. No one will do this. But let's say taxes aren't an issue. Just go sell the whole thing. And then you have this moment of peace where you can say, okay, well, I've gotten rid of, I threw all away all that baggage. Let's begin anew. What would you invest in? And it's never the same as it was, almost never for people, right? They got, well, you know, I brought this Bristol Myers in the 90s and I just, I don't know, waiting to get back to even or I own this fund and, you know, I just, I, they throw a great party. Like it just on and on and on, right? Um but those are emotional decisions, not objective ones. And so I, I think that process, which most won't do, email me. Let me know if you guys do it, <laughs> listeners. But Well, what complicates it in this cycle, I think, is is just how spectacular the lottery gains have been for, for, for you know, U.S. equity cap-weighted investors, right? Um, I mean, you've literally, you're, you're operating off 2x, 3x in... Um, in the last decade, sort of excluding 2022. And so I wonder if my, it might take a substantially larger downdraft that, that persists for longer to give people that kind of pause and potential for um, review, catharsis and review, just because, you know, people are just so much more wealthy than I think anyone ever dreamed they would be five or six years ago due to the fact that indices have compounded it, you know, three to four times their normal rate over the last decade, um, especially on a risk-adjusted basis. I think it might take a little bit more pain to yeah, get people I mean, I mean, motivate I mean, them to look, change. The, the, you and I, 
we've we've been doing this for a few years now chatting and, and we probably would have said a lot of similar things last year and two years ago but it's it's different now in 2022 we, i mean the world the world has changed and we said this on twitter we're like this feels like one of these periods where you look around and say when did all these stocks go down 70 to 90 percent and then there's a list like you can now pull it up on on a lot of these companies that are down 70 to 90 percent and um, so it's happened in a tiny corner of the world. You see a lot of our VC friends kind of losing it already. And the rest of the world is like, what you guys like stop being so dramatic. Yeah. Like, what's going And you yeah, see some of these absolutely. funds that are down 50, 60% and be like, what, when did this just happen? Like how, how are you guys down 60% so far this year? Um, and so I think it'll be a process, right? Like GDP, uh, net worth and income in the U S relative GP is the highest it's ever been, uh, higher mm -hmm. than the twenties. And so, you know, you had this period that overshot. Now, my least popular tweet in a long time, and, and that's something that's saying something because my tweets are on average very unpopular. Um, and this tweet had no opinions. It just was factual commentary it was I said, look, historically speaking, if you look at valuation multiples in the U.S., this is back when 10 year CAPE ratio we like to use it doesn't really matter was it 40? It's now at 30, but the same thing still applies. I said, hypothetically speaking, investors don't like paying huge multiples on the stock market when inflation is high. So up to 4% doesn't matter. Above 4% is when it starts to kink and it gets worse over 6%. But historically, investors pay low teen multiples if inflation is where it is today, or even if it goes back down to 6%, even back down at four, it's um, a third lower than it is today from here, you know, not from the peak. And so, man, people were angry about that. Uh, they were really um, up and up in arms and huffy about that. And I said, I didn't even say anything. I just said, this is a historical data fact. And I said, by the way, this isn't sailing through the mean and median. This is just the actual average, which means half or worse, <laughs> lower than that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so I think... Uh, Look, man, it's it's been we just did this fun podcast. You heard up Peter Zion and he's like, look, this has been a great time, you know, and, and, and so I translate it to markets like it was an amazing run for the S&P for a decade. Like, my God, like you had some of the best returns ever. That should give you pause already. Right. Uh, everything we know about mm -hmm. markets. So, um, you know, I, I think it's the exact playbook, you know. Um, like, like we know what's going to happen. Um, people find religion after the fact, perhaps, but, uh, I, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really like, particularly with all the private equity flows. Um, I, I think it could be a, a process. I don't think this is a, a one year deal would be my guess. But remember, remember my, my quote, you can put this on my gravestone as I think it's better to be uh, Rip Van Winkle than Nostradamus, right? Like just like invest, get this great portfolio, put it on autopilot versus trying to predict. And I'm, I'm wading into prediction territory, but uh, my guess is um, it, yes, it could be an extended period. It doesn't have to be a decade, it'd be a couple years, but um, where where things don't do 17% a year and, and people start to reflect a little bit. Bond, bonds, I think has been a big, surprise for the negative sentiment. I think people assume wrongly that bonds would always hedge stocks. And that's certainly not the case this year.
You know, we've been friends a long time. I've never heard you use that quote, but I love it. I'm totally stealing it now. Yeah. Better good. to be Rip Van Winkle than Nostradamus. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's very smart. I like the, I, I, you know, the, the point you made, I, I just, I find like, you know, all the, you know, the more, the more energy we put into making a decision about a particular holding and it, when it fails, we're even more unlikely to get out of it because we put so much decision power into it. So when you, when you go to the other extreme of having a rules-based strategy where you had absolutely no part in the decision-making, then, you know, when your portfolio changes because the rules change, because the rules determined uh, that your portfolio should change, you have no part in that either because you, you have no emotional stock in that. Uh, but when you do have emotional stock, I found like for me personally, the holdings that, that I was, you know, most loath to let go, like the stuff in the garage that, that you know, we hoard. Right. You guys You're are going right. to you guys gonna have to post pictures of your garage after this show. Uh, and we can just hold everyone's feet to the fire and say, all right, guys, this is an episode of hoarders. Uh, we got to take, we got to take your portfolio. Uh, um, mine is one headline just, is completely full currently. So that's such a great that. analogy because that's such a great analogy, Med, because, you know, it's true. Like I think most investors, most, you know, most retail investors anyways are, are to a large extent, you know, they're waiting to break even. They're holding stuff that is never going to break even. It's never, you know, might never be fixed for them. But they're, but because they made a decision, they liked it at some point. It, it's almost like they're having to come to terms with, with, uh, you know, with shame or humility, and they just can't do it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of emotions wrapped up in money, right? Like you think of, um, and I think it's probably better now than for our parents and, and parents generation before that, you know, money, very a taboo topic, uh, not just personal finance and investing. If, if people even talked about investing, I think it's a lot more out in the open now. Um, but still I bemoan the lack of, you know, finance education or, or personal investing in, in schools, but it's getting better with y'all's good work and others, right. We're trying. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough topic. Shouldn't be. It's underappreciated you know, though how um it's a really good point, Pierre, I think, and underappreciated that that the more research and due diligence that you um that you do on an investment, the harder it is to to let go and the easier it is to become overconfident and probably over concentrated in it. Right. So there's this um tension between wanting to know what you own, but not wanting to know it so well that um, you, you want to just concentrate everything in it and or you're reluctant to let it go if you learn something new about it that makes it not nearly so attractive, right? So, I mean, that's another advantage to rules-based investing, right? You don't, you don't fall in love with any of the investments because, you know, you're just following this set of fairly abstract rules and um, there's nothing to be emotional about. Yeah. But you know, that's the, uh, we, we say there's two classes of investors and I'm now pretty heavy in both trend following, of course, where it's got pretty low batting average on average. Um, you know, and we, we had somebody talking to us on Twitter and they were talking about a long-term moving average and they're like, Meb, how could you use this? Look at this. The last three trades have been losers. And I was like, three, 
You think that's a lot? I mean, this thing could do 10 in a row losing trades. Like the, the batting average is not what matters here, right? It's the big, huge winners, the power laws of investing. Like that's all that matters in investing is this power law concept where you have these huge winners. And this applies to market cap indexes too. Like all the gains come from McDonald's and Walmart and Amazon. doesn't matter if you have an Enron in there. And so um, one of the beauties of trend following is you learn to live with the losers. Like you you get it's not a big deal like you get a little zen mentality like oh here's another buy signal for wheat oh here's another buy signal for wheat oh here's another buy <laughs> signal for wheat you know angel investors it's the same math right like you do 100 investments half are going to go to zero and they're totally at peace that it's interesting to me though that there's not a lot of overlap between the two camps i don't know a lot of angel investors that use managed futures or trend or, or there's some on the opposite um but uh, I was into a debate with a guy on, on Twitter, a famous um, angel investor, Dave McClure, and we were talking. I said, and this is the beginning of the year, and I was like, it's strange to me that not more private equity, but also venture capital, considering how autocorrelated some of their booms and busts are to such very large magnitudes. I said, I'm surprised they, A, don't allocate to trend and manage futures, or B, use trend to hedge. It seems like that would be a very obvious psychological, wouldn't take much for them to understand, oh, okay, this would make sense to do that. But I don't know any that do um, in, the, in the traditional sense that way. Um, there's, some to like, there's some endowments that will allocate to, to both, but yeah. I, don't, I don't know a lot that, that think that way. But you got to embrace yeah. the losers. I love the losers. That's, uh, you gotta be, we had a post, something called like, to be a good investor, you have to be a good loser. You know, we spend most of our time in a drawdown, so... It's either all-time high or drawdown, and you know you got to be com comfortable with both. Yeah, well, who, who said it? You gain something from every trade, either yeah. a profit oh, yeah. or a lesson. Yeah, you, um, you. Uh, uh, oh man, I just blinked on it. You, um, you gain wisdom. Uh, oh, I don't mean you, you said it. it's like listening to a song. And someone plays you the wrong song, and then you get that one in your head, and then you can't you can't sing the the song. Yep. The melody is like you either make money or learn from every trade, but never both. That's not quite it, but it's close. Yeah, wisdom or profit, but never both, something like never that. Never both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, failure is a better teacher than success. Yeah. Definitely. Well, what should else, we- guys? What, should what we do you, let, what, No, don't let you, me go. I was gonna ask what you guys got uh, on your brain. What are you guys working on? Anything uh, particularly interesting in this uh, sell in May and see y'all in the fall, summer sabbatical? What's going on this summer? What are you guys, what are you guys working we've, on? Mike's going to South Africa for a month in July, so he's looking forward to that. Um, taking the family to Europe in in August. I was going to say, speaking of running of towards the it's running running towards the tiger on the savanna, may not see Mike again. <laughs> yeah, not, I don't know if he has the gene, the runaway. I think he's the run towards gene. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. That's like <laughs> he's a good he's a good one to have on safari with you. Yeah, um, yeah, there you go. But he's not. It's not healthy for him to go on safari. I, he's I a bigger you. meal for the lion. He's a lot like the lion's not going to be looking at me and be like, oh, like that's just, you know, he's, he's a morsel. I want this big, this big lumbering antelope over here. That's what I'm going to go for. Yeah, that's right. Tell you what, we're, we've been trying to kick, kick the tires on whether we want to add um, crypto futures to our risk parity strategy. Because one of the interesting things we've noticed over the last decade is that, you know, well, Definitionally, when only a very narrow segment of the market is delivering all the returns, 
then any attempt at diversification looks silly, right? And yeah. I mean, the last decade, what, seven or eight stocks delivered like 90% of total global gains <laughs> across all markets. And um, so how do you sort of hedge against these crazy concentrated growth cycles? And, you know, while probably in the next growth cycle, whenever it happens, fucking 10 years from now or whatever, um, crypto won't be a good hedge for that. But it is an interesting different bet that you just aren't capturing in any of the other markets that you would typically what, what are you leaning to towards yay or nay well i mean because the risk allocation well the capital allocation would be so small because they're so volatile we're talking about like one percent or less in aggregate to the two contracts but because they're up like four thousand percent you know that actually has a meaningful return contribution, even though the the risk is a little lower. Now, you know, who knows what will happen going forward. But again, it's I, just like a different bet. I like I like the idea of it. Um, you know, there um, Cam Harvey had a recent paper out on trend following in crypto and had some positive uh, remarks on it. Um, you can add in the show note links. Um, you know, I we were hanging out uh, with uh, Professor Doctor Sharp, Nobel laureate, the other night, and. Um, someone asked him a question they're like dr sharp uh does crypto have a role in the global market portfolio and he kind of paused and he's he's like as sharp as uh, sharp he's as smart as a whip as he as he ever was and he paused and he goes yes but not a positive one <laughs> that was so funny, <laughs> so funny. He was dying, you know, like just trolling everyone in the audience and he's like you know he's like the traditional view of like hey this doesn't have cash flows it's not a cash produce, uh, a yield producing asset, whatever. But, um, you know, it's, um, as an actual trade diversifier to a traditional portfolio, I don't know why not, you know, um, I, I think it's a, it, it's, it's not a huge percentage of the global market portfolio. And because of the volatility, like you said, you can, you can, um, deal with the risk by simply sizing it appropriately. Uh, that's, we're getting to the end of the podcast and now we're getting to the, the real gems, portfolio sizing, position <laughs> sizing, you know, is, is probably more important than everything we talked about thus far. Uh, but you know, if, if, if you put me on the resolve board, I'll vote, I'll vote. Yes. That, that, that would be my, I say, yeah, you guys include it. <laughs> I think that's a, I think it's a great, great, uh, input, but you know, it's funny. Like you talk to all the trend followers half the time. It's like, what's your best returning position? It's like, carbon credits or, you know, like wheat's having an amazing year, but for the last 10 years, like who, which, which investor has a significant wheat? I mean, and forget about energy in general, like two years ago, we have this conversation is be like, that's going to zero somehow. But, um, so yeah, <laughs> or negative. wait, so the, by the two contracts, you mean Bitcoin and Dogecoin or Dogecoin and uh, yeah, Shiba, yeah, right, yeah. Shiba Nibu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just the listed futures, but, uh, Anyway, yeah, there's always something new to think about. So uh, that's that's one of the directions we were kicking the tires on. But yeah, there's awesome. lots going on. So, Matt, what yeah. do you see? What do you see right now as being the most contrarian, contrarian thing to do in the market? You know, um, I have a whole list on Twitter. I'd love to see Adam do this because I feel like most of his views would fit this category. But I have a whole running list of called. Meb's contrarian takes on investments investments that at least 75% of my peers don't agree with. And it's about it's up to about 20 right now. That's not your question, but it's a fun list because it's an equal opportunity offender. There's 
takes on there that will offend every single person at, at some point. Um, so, so restate it. What is the most contrarian investment right now? Is that what you said? Okay. Uh, I'm going to tell you one more story because I can't answer a question straightforward. Uh, and um, we did a post on Twitter a couple years ago where I said, okay, nominate an investment. Here's a contest, but it's the game is you have to nominate something that's going to lose the most money over the next year. And the number one and number two investments, you can't make this up, were Bitcoin and GameStop, both of which went up 1,000% in the year. That the, the goal was to lose money, not make money. They went up 1,000%. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm going to give you one. And this would have been one I would have said last year too, probably. And it's only gotten worse. Um, you know, I think emerging market value, uh, I mean, foreign value in general, because now a lot of foreign developed, depending on location, is also pretty, pretty um, beaten down. You know, we bemoan all the U.S. stock valuations, but the reality is foreign developed is totally reasonable and foreign emerging is, is kind of scorching cheap. Now, um, that is after, but also before Russia essentially went to zero and 95% of emerging market funds, including ours, held Russian stocks. Now, what's interesting, and I got to be careful what I say here, so I'm not talking about our fund, but I'm talking about funds in general. To my knowledge, every ETF out there that owned Russian securities has marked those positions to zero. Now, who knows what the future is going to hold? We're ignoring all the obvious death and destruction, the sadness that's going on just from a purely investment standpoint. You know, Russian people are not their government. Russian companies are not the government, yada, yada, on and on. Um, and you do like a, we have to think, in all of our world, quantitative investing, like a probabilistic thinking, right? Here's the possible outcomes. Here's the odds we're giving it. The majority outcome of this scenario is probably, hopefully, and this is you know ideal, that this conflict winds down. There's a treaty. New lines are drawn. You know, maybe the sanctions remain, whatever. But there's a value to those companies, and it may be twenty cents on the dollar. Okay. But it's not zero. It can't get worse, right? It can't, it can't go worse than zero. There's a small percentage where things go to hell in a handbasket and it is worth zero, but that's already priced in. There's a scenario where, hey, um, humanity is restored and things just like go in the right direction. It's a small percentage, but, you know, where not only do those stocks hit par, they hit double or triple par. But all of that is already marked at zero, right? So I can, saying it's a free call option is not quite accurate, but but that is one component of this. In addition to the rest of the emerging market portfolio, which is already at huge valuations, uh, uh, huge cheap valuations relative to its history and relative to US. Now, there's a big looming um, Jupiter of the emerging markets, which is China and most emerging market funds. If you own it, it's half China, by the way, or some, some of them it's more And China, you know, some people think this is a test run like Russia, Russia and Ukraine versus China and Taiwan, but 
China, if you look back, it's very short history um, with valuations uh, in the 2000s. Like it's only traded at this valuation twice before. So it's like a 10 PE ratio. It's, it's, it's low for China. And in both times, a year or two hence, um, was up 50% and the other time was up 200%. Now, are you getting a, any sort of um, premium for investing in Chinese stocks? Like, you know, are you willing to make that bet? That seems pretty anti-contrarian to me right now. Um, China's got to be up there in, in emerging markets in general. Now, I could talk about the individual countries I love, like Poland and UK uh, is is at half or two-thirds lower valuations in the U.S. And going back 150 years, those two kind of zig and zag. I, I, I got them all day. You guys, we could we could do this. We, we used to do a post for a long time um, looking at, like, what is the most beaten down investment. And for many years in a row, it was energy and ag. So if you Google, like, why you want coal stocks in your stocking for Christmas, mm-hmm. it was coal mm-hmm. stocks, uranium stocks, and then ags. And I think last year... Um, Everything had been going up for a while, uh, so I think it was like Pakistan it was like the only thing we could find that was like down three, four years in a row or a bunch. Anyway, there's a lot more now today, but I'm going to stick with that. That was my that was my very short winded answer to your question. You're not worried about Peter Zion's comments about China going into a demographic collapse this decade. You know, the, the, this is the beauty of being a quant, as I say, I, I can gossip and drink beers with you guys and talk till the cows come home on investing opinions, and it will not matter one whit to what my portfolios actually do. Uh, and, and as a good example, our largest and oldest fund consistently buys stocks that I would vomit and never in a thousand years buy if given the discretion. Our largest holding is Dillard's. Dillard's is like, it's like a department store. I, I don't think I've been in since the 90s. And I'm like, are you got to be kidding me? This looks, sounds like the worst investment of my lifetime. I want to buy something exciting, you know, that, that you know, um, <laughs> disruption, innovation. And we got Dillard's anyway. Um, so that's the beauty of, of what we're doing. You know, we've actually, most of our value strategies had avoided China uh, for a long time now. Now they held Russia, so a bit of a wash, but, um, I would be surprised. It owns a lot of, uh, our emerging market um, strategy actually, uh, has a heavy tech allocation, which is interesting to me because the U S and the developed don't, um, I would be surprised if it didn't in the coming quarters year, start to allocate more towards China. I, I, it makes me nervous as hell, <laughs> but I'm nervous about anything. It doesn't matter. So <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what happens. What do you think, Pierre? Ned, do you have any what what other ground you want to cover, buddy? Guys, we could talk for hours. I'm uh, I'm I'm easy, man. Um, it's summertime. It's getting ready to be. I'm ready to wax up the surfboard, come down the Caymans, cruise around on a uh, foil board. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I uh, get up to Canada. We, I'm ready to travel again. Go some fun places. I got a couple of sabbatical projects for the summer that won't happen that have been I've been trying to do for like the last four years. So uh, we'll see when when those when those get get some time. Are we gonna get that Jap- Japan ski trip going this year? Or Yen is at twenty year lows, that? my friend. So not only that, mm, uh, you're this getting is the a year. fat discount. This is the time to this is the time to 
to book it. The yen seems to be about to, about ready to take a big dirt nap, so uh, it's getting cheaper. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man. Generous as always. Yeah, Matt. Thank you so much. That was that was. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always, I'm at a loss for words because. <laughs> I am not. Got... I could talk for an hour more. I'm not. I'm not lost for words. Uh, we could do that. We could do this. No, I, like, I, I do this. this. is like part one I, of the trilogy. Like, absolutely. I, I feel like the conversation could, could continue, but if we start a new topic, we're we're going to be another half hour. <laughs> yeah, easy. Could be. All right, guys. But, uh, it's been a blast. Uh, blessed uh, to spend a time with you, and uh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks, bud. Good to see you.